0: outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything
1: in the world? Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Ask Alan, the podcast. I'm Alan Crone, the CEO of the Crone Law Firm, and I'm very excited uh, to have with us today Mr. Mark Russell, who's the Executive Editor of the Memphis Commercial Appeal. Mr. Russell, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you, Alan. I'm excited to be on it. My first time being on the Ask Alan podcast, and I'm honored.
1: Well, you're you're awful nice. You're awful nice. Um, Well, I don't really know where to start. Um, The uh, Commercial Appeal is a is an icon, a fixture in uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, how long have, how long have you been uh, the editor?
0: I've been editor about four and four years in chains, coming up on four and a half years. And I've been here in Memphis as a top editor. I started as a managing editor back in 2013. So my uh, Memphis experience is nearing a decade now, and I've been ecstatic to be here. Happy to still be here. Where did uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in St. Louis, not too far away. I like to joke that it's a small town up north. And I spent time in St. Louis growing up when University of Missouri have lived and worked in places like Cleveland, Ohio, Boston, and Orlando before arriving in Memphis uh, nine and a half years ago.
1: Well, you and I have that in common. I went to high school in Belleville,
0: Illinois. Huh, how about that? Yeah, right across the river.
1: Right across the river. As, as one of my teachers used to say, go to the top of the arch and fall east. <laughs> and uh, you'll land in Belleville. Yeah. Um, yeah how do how do you how do you find Memphis and St. Louis to compare with one another?
0: Sure, they're very similar in some ways, and, and the comparisons even go beyond the obvious ones of being sort of you know somewhat mid south cities. I mean, St. Louis is neither north nor south in some ways. It's kind of firmly rooted in the Midwest, but I think it has many more southern sensibilities than most northern cities uh, do. They also are similar in that they also have a really strong musical heritage and, and food heritage as well. Ours is more rooted in, in of course, uh, uh, jazz and blues and theirs is I mean, a little bit of everything really, but I think jazz is a strong strain in the Memphis, music in the St. Louis, Memphis, St. Louis musical history. They also have a, a pretty strong interest in food. I think uh, people kind of sleep on Memphis's uh, Food credibility. And I think St. Louis is similar in that respect. You know, great Italian restaurants, area called the Hill District, as you probably have heard about if you've been to St. Louis. And much as we root for the Grizzlies, that is our primary sports franchise, theirs has, was, and always will be the Cardinals baseball team. So we're very similar in that respect. Beyond that, we're similar in that our demographics are somewhat similar. You know, we're both cities that have a majority African-American population in the city proper with a surrounding county that is uh, very diverse, just like it is here in Shelby County. They're a bigger city in some, in some respects by population, as well as uh, cultural uh, activities and amenities. So I, I, call, I call it sort of the, the smaller version of St. Louis, and they're the bigger version of Memphis. Well, I think that's true. Uh,
1: you know, you, you mentioned the Hill, and uh, a lot of those families actually started in Memphis and uh, went to St. Louis during the Yellow Fever uh, oh. epidemic here in Memphis. And because uh, a lot of them came over after the Civil War, there were a lot of uh, 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 recruiting going on among the Italian peasantry to come and work in the, in the fields in, in the Delta. And so they came in through, uh, through New Orleans, settled in the Delta, then just kind of moved north uh, over the next 20 years, settled in Mexico. And then with the yellow fever moved up to, a lot of them moved up to St. Louis. So um, I think there's always been a lot of commerce and, and uh, back and forth between St. Louis and Memphis.
0: Yeah, well, one of the things that I remember growing up uh, some decades ago was our family every summer would make a pilgrimage to Memphis, namely South Memphis and spend time with relatives, some distant, some not so distant, and also new friends we made. And it was a, something I always looked forward to. It was a long enough drive where you felt like you were getting away. It wasn't wasn't really that far away. It's like a four and a half hour drive uh, kind of then is now. So I was making a trip even before I even thought about coming to Memphis as a, as a journalist, I was making those trips back when I was a teenager, even younger. Well,
1: that's, uh, well, that's, that's great. So you've, you've at least had some experience with Memphis for a long
0: time. Right. And I also remember, this is a signature moment for me, my father and I used to go to a lot of basketball games in St. Louis. And the one I remember most was one that's probably painful for some Memphians. It was the game that featured Larry Keenan and the Memphis Tigers versus uh, Bill Walton and the UCLA Bruins. I think, if I recall correctly, that was a tough matchup because Bill Walton had such a great game. That, that's the
1: right way to put it. It was Bill Walton <laughs> and the UCLA Bruins. Right. He had, he had a heck of a game.
0: It was a heck of a game. And we were right there at the, the arena. Which is now torn down. Watching the game, I think in the very last row of the upper deck, if memory serves,
1: probably um, all the I, tickets we could afford. I uh, I went to the uh, when when I went there, it was the Checker Dome, okay, and, and uh, uh, that was probably the last couple of decades before it it was torn down because I, you know, there was a lot of basketball in there, a lot of uh, hockey in there. That was one of the great, uh, you know, one of the great old um, indoor arenas uh, in, in America. And it's a shame that, uh, that it had to go away, but that's kind of the, the way it's progress.
0: That's progress for you. That's right.
1: That's right. Well, uh, so why journalism? Uh, you went to Missouri, which is the university of Missouri, which is the Harvard for journalism.
0: Um, Uh, like to think of it that way. And frankly, I didn't know what I wanted to do as I was coming through high school. I was probably a junior when I first, um, met a journalist at the Post-Dispatch, which is my hometown paper, of course, and spent a day with him at the behest of my mother who wanted me to figure out what I want to do with my, my life beyond high school. And this journalist told me all about his day and about the field. And I was just really kind of enthralled by what he told me and thought, this is fantastic. You get to talk to people all day. You get to write what you think and write stories. And you're not tied to a desk, which I was was then and am now sort of a wonder wanderlust. And, it really became the field for me. And just to give you a quick story here, I still wasn't quite sure I wanted to put aside my dream of being a NFL wide receiver, although I didn't have the skill set to even do that. And I was still planning to go to Northeast Missouri State and be a walk-on athlete on that team. I played football in high school at Rosary High School and thought I could do the same at a smaller college. And I was on campus visiting Northeast Missouri State when I got a phone call one of those old-fashioned phone calls I had to actually go to a phone with a wire in a room and talk to the journalist who was my mentor in St. Louis and he said what are you doing are you visiting school your mother told me you're visiting school I said yep I'm visiting Northeast Missouri State it's a great school and I want to go there and I want to play football and I want to study journalism and he quickly told me that that I was essentially a knucklehead because the best journalism school in the nation was in in your state it wasn't right down the road, but it was close enough that I could get on the Greyhound bus and travel to Missouri and check it out. And he told me, look, whatever you do, go visit Missouri before you make any rash decisions about where you can go to school. And that's how I ended up at Missouri. And essentially how I ended up in journalism is I had a mentor who took great interest in me and told me I was making a wrong decision about going to a, a state school that was not Missouri. Well,
1: uh, you know, it's so often in our lives. It's a, it's moments like that that really to determine what the arc of our life is going to be. And, and uh, you were very lucky to have someone that cared that much about you to uh, uh, kibitz as much in your, your college decision. Absolutely. I thank my lucky stars every day. Well, you you made it to the NFL of journalism by being the executive <laughs> editor. Um, uh, so, you know, so what about journalism for those young folks that may be watching this? Um, What about journalism today uh, is evocative of those ideals that you just mentioned, telling stories, um, making a difference?
0: So, for all the things that have, great question, for all the things that have changed in our field, uh, namely the uh, the digital elements of our business and how we can look at audience and get instant uh, information about who's reading our stories, to what extent they're reading our stories, for all those technological advances and changes, our business still revolves around telling stories, talking to people, understanding stories, also doing watch reporting. It is still a business rooted in understanding how people operate, how they work, getting to know them and then telling their stories. And that's frankly never gonna change in our business, no matter how technologically advanced we uh, get, no matter what we're doing with augmented reality, digital storytelling, drone photography, we're still at at our base telling stories. That's what they're doing on network television, it's what they're doing on local television, it's what they're doing in newspapers and digital sites throughout the nation and the world, of just telling stories. And um, that
1: that storytelling has been so important. Um, You know, journalism in America, all from the very, very beginning has been uh, a catalyst for change, as well as a catalyst for the status quo. Because whether your agenda was change or status quo, um, you did it through the printed word.
0: Absolutely. And I think people sometimes forget, you're absolutely right, how much journalism has contributed to change in our nation. I think if not for journalism, the civil rights movement wouldn't have happened as quickly as it did and wouldn't have, have had such lasting effects as it did. Uh, journalism has been a catalyst for moving a whole range of issues in our nation and helping people understand issues better. I think one thing that's happening right now, for example, just giving a current example, is the uh, potential war between Russia and Ukraine. People are understanding it better through journalism because that's a complicated um, mini-layered mini event with lots of contextual history. Some uh, very confusing, and I think to the extent that journalism and journalists can explain what's happening, people have a better grasp on the issues involved there, and maybe understand better. For example, uh, Vladimir Putin's position. I mean, it, it seems hard to understand his position if you come into this fresh, but if you understand the history of that region, you maybe understand his position better.
1: Well, that's right, and uh, you know, not not to take uh, Putin's side on this. Oh no, not at all. Uh, no, 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 but. But I do think a lot of people really don't understand um, the geopolitical uh, absolutely niceties that that you know Ukraine abuts Poland, right. and you know the Russians have always wanted to have a buffer between the West and and whoever they were. Uh, you know, different times their borders were farther east or farther west than than they are now. Um, but it, it really is kind of hard. You know, in 2022, it's hard to see what, what Putin thinks the end game is here. And that's not something you can get by just listening to somebody tell you how many tanks are uh, in western Ukraine right now. Absolutely. Um, or eastern Ukraine, excuse me.
0: It's one of the reasons uh, this isn't a good example, Alan, today in the print edition of the commercial appeal, which I hope many of your uh, listeners still get. If not that, the digital edition. We put a story about Ukraine on the front page instead of what normally would be a local story, because I just thought, as the editor, that's a story that's very important to us as a community. It's important to the nation and the world, and I wanted to put that story out there for people to read. And it's a it's a much longer story than we typically would run on a national international event, and we did it on purpose.
1: Well, let let's let's kind of take that as a jumping off point. Sure. Um, What is the role of a local newspaper these days
0: uh, from from where you sit? Um, So I think it, it, it has not changed a whole lot. It is still to tell the story of a community through a whole range of subjects. I'll start just with the basic news of the day. We're gonna give you an approximation, and it's on our website for the most part, not our print edition, of what is happening in a given day or what happened yesterday. And we're gonna help you make sense of your local world, if you will. But we're also gonna give you some sense of, from a sports standpoint, how excited the community is about the Grizzlies and how John Morant in Cleveland performed as an All-Star and what happened to him on, on All-Star weekend. We're also gonna give you a sense of food stories and other entertainment stories and music stories. So we're trying to give you a mix of a, of, of a variety of things that help you better understand your community and not just hard news or straight news or watchdog reporting, but a variety of things that help you better understand your community and appreciate your community. So I think a newspaper and a newsroom in general has not changed a whole lot from years past in that regard. We're still here to help people make sense of the world every single day.
1: The um, what What is the role of the printed edition in 2022?
0: So it's very different. I'm glad you asked that question because I would say 10, 15 years ago, the printed edition of a newspaper was probably still where many people turned to make sense of their local world and even from a national standpoint, which stories were important. And we as journalists did that through the curation and selection of stories on a daily basis at the end of the day. And then we presented the next day, sometimes three or four, sometimes five stories on the front page, the local front, the sports front, if you had a features front, the features front as well too. So that was 15 years ago. Today, that same selection of stories happens in real time, literally all day long. That same curation of stories, selection of stories, and highlighting of stories happens on Facebook, on Twitter. Sometimes it happens on Instagram. And more recently, we've even begun using TikTok to talk about So the newsroom and issues that we cover, those things didn't exist 15 years ago. So the print newspaper today, for the most part, is still a place where you can look to get a sense of what might've happened yesterday, but sometimes it's two days ago because of the cycle of news and the deadlines of news now. And we also are looking to use the print edition to provide more context. So the example I just gave a few minutes ago, about the story about Ukraine and Russia that ran on the front page today on, this is Tuesday the 22nd, is a much longer story that's filled with context. It's from the Associated Press. I think three writers wrote the story. That's something that you can probably find online if you work really hard. But for print readers who have a little more time and want more understanding of an issue like that, it's there for them on the front page. And that's something that I think we ought to do more, provide context and information, sort of a lean back experience for people in the print edition that you won't really get online unless you're really good at how to find those kind of stories. Even right. I have trouble, by the way, finding those stories online. So I know most readers do. Well, how does the,
1: do you think the attention span of the American public is is dwindling uh, that make those kind of stories uh, less uh, sought after?
0: I think people get hit with a variety of things in any given day. And this is apart from your own daily life, your family, your work, your church, your friends. I think people are getting hit and hit again with news alerts from broadcast stations, from single source topical sites, be it The Athletic or be it Bloomberg Business News or Politico for Politics. And I think more and more, And I'm this way, especially, I don't remember what I read at nine o'clock when it's three o'clock. It's hard for me to make some sense of what I saw earlier. So I think in some ways, it is important for us to break out of the uh, pattern and give people, whether it's online or in print, something that's a little more uh, contextual, something that's a little more sustaining than they might get in that quick news alert or that quick broadcast report that they may not remember a few hours later. Yeah, it's a
1: it's a tough it's a tough uh, line to walk. And uh, I remember in the late 90s, being in retrospect, uh, extremely wrong. And I'd be interested in your opinion of why I was wrong. But I will never forget, at one point, realizing that the internet, Now, this is like I say, 1998, somewhere in there. The internet was all about content. And I talked to my then uh, law partner miles mason i said you know it's not gonna be too long before the newspapers own the internet because they got all this content and do
0: you have any perspective on why i was wrong about that sure i think a couple reasons you were wrong so let's start with the basics here that the internet is a is a very useful vehicle for content finding content for sharing content that's why Facebook has been so popular and remains so popular people use it to share things and you tell your friends what you're reading and they want to read it too. What the Internet doesn't do so well it doesn't help curate content for you so magazines and newspapers, even in their diminished form today still do a pretty good job of curating what content you ought to know about and what content you ought to read. It is why the Sunday editions of the Commercial pill the Washington Post, New York Times, I'm not putting us in the same categories then, by the way, I'm just pointing out- no, you're everything. much better. Yeah, you're we better. all have Sunday newspapers, right? Yeah. And it's why those tend to be more successful, have more advertising than any daily paper, because that's a day where people look to find those kind of stories. And I think the internet can never match that for the sheer uh, breadth of that kind of content and, and the ability to curate that kind of content. The other thing that's kind of obvious to me is that when you look at an ad and you see it online, it becomes kind of fleeting, just kind of, just like the stories you see, unless it's tailored to you, if you were searching for a new set of golf clubs and then the website served up golf club manufacturers and okay that's that's good because you're wanting golf clubs but just a, a basic banner ad on a basic website you're not even if you see it you're not going to remember it much but when you're looking in print and every day there's an ad on the front page for jewelry manufacturer medni there's an ad for whole foods advertising every not whole foods it's fresh market every single day a different deal at fresh market you're going to remember that you're going to remember that and you leave that paper Around the house or around the office, and you walk by it and see that ad, it's yet another subliminal message that that's a good deal. You might want to consider that product. And the internet hasn't been able to quite match that kind of ad scope, even though Google and Facebook are the ad behemoths and have done very, very well. I think from a local newspaper standpoint, particularly on Sunday, there's still a market for those kind of ads, and that's why I think you still see uh, those kind of uh, circular advertising in newspapers on Sunday. Those aren't going to go away. So even if we didn't have daily newspapers, we would still have a Sunday paper because I think there's still a market for it, an appetite for it. People still buy the Sunday commercial pill on street corners as a driving to church or the grocery store wherever else they're going. There are not a lot of businesses that could sell a product on the street corner and people would stop and pull out cash money to buy it. We're still one of them. And I think it's for good reason.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, take on it. I hadn't thought about, uh, about that. And um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there's something, and maybe, I, you know, I don't know if, if it's just that I'm in my 50s, uh, but there's something tactile about a newspaper, um, about a book, and um, there's also something that's nice to have, that's permanent about it. Um, you know, it it's nice to be able to clip out when your your daughter is in a, you know, is running track and and did really well, and you've got the story, and you can put that in a scrapbook. It's a lot different than um, whatever you do with with that same uh, story that's on the internet.
0: I don't, I, I'm probably not normal in this behavior, but if you, like me, if you go to Barnes & Noble, there's still a few bookstores left, novel among them in this, in this fine city. If you hang around the periodical shelf where they have dozens of magazines of every stripe on the shelves, just hang around them, get a cup of coffee and watch as people walk in and what they look at, what they grab, what they end up buying. In some cases, they don't buy anything. They just wanna look at the magazines. They, you, you'll see what they're drawn to. They're drawn to bright pictures. They're drawn to people. They, they obviously are gonna be drawn to the subjects they care about. So if it's somebody who's a golfer, they're going to the golf magazines, or a chef, a cook is going to the cooking magazines, but they're still very much as a market for the printed word in magazines and newspapers, despite many predictions that they wouldn't be around 10 years ago, five years ago, even as recently as a few years ago, uh, they're still around and they'll be around for a while.
1: I, I think you're right. I have a friend who was one of the investors in Novel, and um, he's, he says it's doing quite well. Um, you know, not what it was doing before, but it, that, right. you know, kind of to his surprise, um, he went into it as a kind of a community service. And he says, you know, I've gotten a pretty pretty decent return on my investment. Uh, considering what I expected it to be. And he chalks that up to that same thing, that people, um, people are drawn to things as much as they are drawn to information. Well,
0: what's interesting to me is that there was a, a prediction all about the time that uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon were taking over the world and, and uh, becoming a real huge book publisher, that actual book publishers, people who publish real books would go away. And in fact, they've had a resurgence in the last few years they might have fewer titles, uh, they might concentrate on fewer areas, but they haven't, they haven't gone away. They're still very much relevant and around to your, your friend's point. The audience is smaller, but it's still very passionate. And I keep track of these book royalties people are getting and the advances, and they're not small. There's some pretty big royalties that are going on for people that are writing books, which is uh, you know, kind of heartening because if, if somebody is a reader of books, they're probably a reader of magazines and newspapers, which I always like to think those things go hand in hand. Well,
1: the commercial appeal, as I said, is you know, has been in a Memphis institution for decades and maybe even hundreds of years. Yeah. Um 182 and years, and there years. There you go. Yeah, um, so what do you what do you attribute? Um what do you attribute that's its staying power? A lot of local newspapers have uh have folded up tent and uh commercial appeal is is continue to, to publish and and prosper. Um, what is it about the commercial appeal that that gives us its staying power?
0: So you can go through the years for the CA. And if you read the histories, I'm sure you have some of it, I have a lot of it. It was always considered the Mid-South newspaper. So in a in a pretty broad area from North Mississippi, um, much of Tennessee, at least across the way to Jackson, Tennessee and beyond and through parts of eastern Arkansas, and even up to parts of Missouri, the commercial appeal was always considered the flagship newspaper for a whole region. So even as we shrank our numbers, both circulation, uh, employees, and then sort of ambition of what we were doing, we still were considered a, a broader regional newspaper. And I would say even when I arrived here about nine years ago, we still had that that uh, view of a regional newspaper. And although it's, it's, we've become more of a Shelby County newspaper for the most part, with some, uh, some designs on DeSoto County and some designs on Fayette County and some designs on, on parts of Tipton County, we're still by and large a Shelby County newspaper focused on Shelby County people, politics, institution, business, you name it, as well as sports, high school, college, and pros. But I think people still imbue us with this notion that that we're the over which was our nickname back in the day, that we're a paper that's never missed, we've never missed a day. Even despite some challenges with uh, ice storm and weather, we've published every single day, even if it took a couple of days or more to get the paper to someone, we have published every single day. And I guess that's now easy to do because we've been electronic edition as well as a print edition. So we're never gonna miss a day now. But I think people still view us in sort of warm tones because of that history of the CA. And I think despite our uh, changes over the years, we've still tried to maintain some sense in our community of actually covering Memphis. There are a lot of city newspapers that really don't cover their cities that well. And I think we've tried to maintain coverage of Memphis. And I think it helps now that we have competition with the Daily Memphian, their primary reason for being is to cover Memphis. And we still cover Memphis. So people are getting sort of double the coverage in some ways now, particularly if they read both publications.
1: Is is it harder to find career journalists who are willing to to stay in a market like Memphis?
0: It wasn't hard for us. We unfortunately and fortunately had the situation about three and a half years ago where the Daily Memphis started and hired about 12 of our people over the course of several months. So I had to go out and hire literally about half of my staff from a reporting standpoint in just several months. And it was not hard to find good journalists from throughout the nation. Some came right here from Memphis. Others came from as far as we had Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia. It wasn't hard at all. We were able to find people. And I think that's partly because Memphis as a city is a hot place, particularly for young journalists. They want to live in Memphis. They want to be around Memphis. And I think only now that's going to improve further because of John Morant's uh, notoriety. It's going to improve even more. But even in 2018 and 19, it was easy to find young journalists and veteran journalists who wanted to live in Memphis.
1: Well, um, you know, I've talked to uh, a lot of the electronic uh uh, you know, uh, outlets. And uh, it seems that their are they're, they're the, the demographic of their uh, reporters is younger, less experienced, and more um, transitory. You know, they're here to get some experience, and they're moving on to a bigger market. Do you think that journalists, that that newspapers have that problem, or is it a different dynamic with newspapers? We've
0: we've always had that issue in markets like Memphis, because unfortunately, although it's a hot place now, people wanna live in Memphis, it is not as hot as uh, both literally and figuratively as Miami or Los Angeles. So if, if a journalist is in Memphis and they're getting the phone call from the Miami Herald or the Los Angeles Times or the Houston Chronicle, or the Orlando Sentinel, where a few of our reporters and where I used to work, they've gotten calls to go there, or Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel. Uh, people are going to move from Memphis onto a bigger market, particularly if they're not native Memphians and want to be here uh, for the duration of their career and life. They're going to want to move on. And that's okay because, in, in some ways, we have to understand we're not a destination market for, for journalists, we're a uh, move up market. If you're moving up from Springfield, Missouri, if you're moving up from Jackson, Mississippi, or if you're moving up from Montgomery, Alabama, it's a move, move up market, it's a bigger market, but we're certainly not the size and the scope of a market like Houston or Dallas or Chicago or Fort Lauderdale or Miami. And it's just a, it's a reality of our business and it always has been that. There's only a few places that are true in destination markets. And I would say the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, maybe the Boston Globe. That's about it. There's not many. I've never liked that. Yeah, folks don't have any place they can move up to.
1: It's kind of similar to the um, University of Memphis. There's, you know, their coaches for the most part, particularly in football, you come here, you make a mark, and then you go somewhere else. Right.
0: But we have, but we do have some folks that have chosen to stay in Memphis. Uh, I'm one of them. And there are others who have chosen to stay here beyond a few years because they get to Memphis and find that this is a great market to work in. We've got FedEx you can cover. We've got a great restaurant scene, music scene. I think people kind of get here and are pleasantly surprised at the cost of living. I think that's something I preach on all the time when I talk to folks, particularly my friends and my colleagues who work in expensive markets. I said, you need to come to Memphis, it spend a weekend. Because you need to understand that it is not normal to pay three thousand dollars for an apartment per month. It's not normal, right? Unless you live in Los Angeles, then it's normal.
1: Well, uh, kind of famously, a couple of years ago, probably more than a couple now, um, uh, the Commercial Appeal joined the uh, Gannett Publishing. Uh, and how did that? How did that change? You know, I think in in Memphis, to be fair, that has been seen kind of as a negative thing. Yeah, yeah. But what are the positives to that?
0: Um, Sure, it's a good question because I remember when it first happened, uh, there was a lot of gnashing of teeth in Memphis about we would not be locally owned. And I used to remind people that we hadn't been locally owned for decades. We were owned by a company based out of Cincinnati when I first joined the Commercial Appeal called Script Newspapers. And then we were owned by an outfit out of Milwaukee called the Journal Media Group mm-hmm. when I when I was here. So we weren't owned by someone who had an address in Memphis for a long time. So having the Gannett ownership was merely another step in that direction. And it came with some what I thought were obvious benefits that I think people soon came to realize. And one is that It's a company that has deeper pockets than those two other companies that owned us. And it's also a company that we're part of a larger network with sister papers throughout the South region, about six just in Tennessee alone. And the biggest are of course, Knoxville, Nashville, and Memphis. So it means that we've got more resources to use on covering something like state government. So it, it, it sounds good in theory, When you talk about this, but then when there's a a high profile race for the governorship or senatorial seat, or if there's a, uh, you know, a pitched battle over some issue in Nashville, and we're getting coverage from seasoned reporters who have covered this issue for a long time, people are getting the benefit of that in Memphis because we don't have people based in Nashville covering state government, we just don't. We don't have people based in Washington covering the uh, Biden administration or the Trump administration before that. But because of Gannett, we have access to expert storytellers and columnists and others who make it their business to cover those topics very well. So I think over time, it it took a little while for people to realize that the Gannett ownership actually had more positive than negative. And, And I'll be the first to acknowledge some of the negative things were, when we would run stories, too many stories for my taste, from Nashville on our business page or on our features page, it had nothing to do with Memphis. And I think the the one that I've cited a few times, that's sort of funny, but also it cuts to the cut here, is this is a New Year's Eve story about New Year's Day celebrations. And one of the bright lights in our uh, design studio that works with us, that was a good idea to do a story about Nashville's New Year's Day in Memphis. And I read it and thought, well, there's no one in Memphis that's going to drive to Nashville. Not many, maybe a few. But most people are going to go to, if they're going to a, a celebration for New Year's, they're doing it in Memphis. They're doing it on Bill Street, doing it in, in their home, in their neighborhood. They're not going to, to, to Nashville. So that was, that was a miss. That was a clear miss for us. And I think that those kind of misses kind of formed a narrative about how we weren't really Memphis focused. And I viewed them as aberrations, but I think if you have two or three of those, it becomes a pattern. And I understood I understood that. Uh, we have to start hitting these balls a little more cleanly. <laughs> we can't keep glancing them off the uh, off the fence, off the uh, off, off the the fi- a foul ball off the fence, is still a foul ball.
1: Well, I know uh, let me let me switch gears just a little sure. bit because we're running out of time, but I, I want to get to um, your work with the Confederate reckoning. Yes. And um, uh, you, you led a team uh, that uh, that won a top prize, the Robert F. Kennedy, Kennedy Journalism Award. Tell me a little bit about that project and why you thought it was important for you to be involved in it.
0: Sure. It's, it's a uh, it was a signature achievement for not only the South region in, in, the, in the commercial appeal, but also for the entire company. And it involved 30 journalists from throughout the South region. That South region includes Tennessee, of course, but also Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi. And this, this is a series of stories that evolved from our discussions on the, the national reckoning on race and class that, that evolved after the George Floyd murder at the hands of a policeman in Minneapolis Uh, back in the year 2020 happened on Memorial Day. And we thought the one way we could add to the uh, understanding of these issues is by looking at the South areas that we cover. We could look at communities in the South and we could look at how issues like education and housing and food deserts, how they had been affected over the decades by policies and by practices in cities such as Memphis and Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi and Nashville, as well as uh, Montgomery, Alabama and Birmingham and Tuscaloosa. And I just really had a, a ball doing the stories because it really allowed us to show the power of our network. By having that many people involved in a story like that, and I was the, the uh, person who over- oversaw the series, it allowed people to see that these issues that were happening in Philadelphia Mississippi were not that different from the issues that were happening in Nashville or issues happening in Memphis or issues happening in Jackson, Mississippi. So it, it was a ball, had a ball doing it. But at the base of that series was really storytelling. It was telling those stories in a way that people both understood the impact of years of discrimination and practices that were, were frankly deplorable then, deplorable now, and what impact this had on folks in 2021 and twenty seven.
1: Well, uh, I, I really applaud your efforts there, particularly as, as you, I, I think one of the, you know, as, as a white guy uh, one of the things that we don't talk about enough is Jim Crow and segregation. And, you know, you can talk about, well, you know, my my ancestors didn't weren't economically involved in the slave trade or whatever, but we were all involved in in Jim Crow and segregation, and that's the thing that we really have to to unwind because that's really on everybody. That's on everybody that had the ability to speak up and didn't speak up, and uh, uh, I don't know. I just I just feel like it's not talked about enough in a constructive way to let folks on the other side of it, on the white side of it, really realize how destructive it was.
0: Uh, Alan, that's a very uh, telling point. I would even go a, perhaps a step further and say that if, if I got two friends of mine together who were in their mid 60s, late 60s, and both, one black, one white, and both were raised in rural Arkansas, rural Tennessee, rural Alabama, and then we trace their family histories through the generations, we would very likely see two different outcomes. Although each of those friends would talk about their hopes and dreams as a five or six year old, and they would be very similar. But we would see different outcomes, and it is largely because in one group, the white group, they had favored status and got government help through the GI Bill, and through a variety of things that allowed their families to move into neighborhoods where the home prices soared. And that gave them generational wealth. And you would see, for the most part, there's some exceptions, but the Black family, there's some exceptions and some people succeeded. But for the most part, they succeeded against incredible odds because they didn't get much in the way of help, particularly in the 50s and the 60s in the South. Even into the 70s they didn't get much help at all. they succeeded despite despite not getting help. So I think it, it becomes very clear when you talk to folks that that these issues, although you may not have been involved directly, the impact is still relevant today It's still relevant
1: well I, I I agree with you and I would I would even go further to say that not only did they not get any help they were uh, they were intentionally hobbled. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. In in many. Absolutely. And I know you know that, but I think oh, it's absolutely. important to I think absolutely. it's important to say, and I think in the white community, um, I think there's a I may get in trouble. I don't know if I get in trouble for saying this or not, but I think there's a a a blind spot, and that may put be too light, but it's just it's it's hard for some folks to see because they really have no idea what's on the other side of it. And and I think the more we talk about it and the more we get real stories out there, um, uh, the, 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 better off we are. And, um, you know, I, I, I was, I've lived in Memphis all my life, except for a brief stint when I was, uh, in high school at a boarding school in Illinois. But I had a friend who was, uh, from Belleville. He came to Memphis when we were both in college and he drove by, uh, what was then Nathan Bedford Forest Park. And he said, Crone, did you realize you got a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest in the middle of your city? I said, yeah, yeah, I, I know. And he he said, you know who that guy was? And I said, yeah, I do. He says, why is it there? And I said, I don't know. Fast forward to, to when uh, Mayor Strickland took that down. I was in the mayor's office at the time and I won't call a name, but I, there, was a, there was an uh, elderly African-American guy who ran into the mayor, and he took the mayor's hand and he said, what's wonderful about that is someone finally listened to us. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, if you grew up white in Memphis, whether you grew up, you know, it doesn't matter what part of the city you grew up in, that statue didn't bother you. And I always hate whether people are offended. That's not really what we're talking We're not talking about offended. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm offended when somebody doesn't get my, my uh, restaurant order right. But when, when you build a monument to something to, to oppress people, yeah. every African-American I ever talked to about this, they knew exactly why it was built and what the message was. And white Memphians either don't want to admit it or just really are oblivious to it because it's not a message aimed at them, and so talking about that inter period between the between Reconstruction and now, where things happened that uh, have, uh, as you say, have are affecting us so deeply now. I don't know what, where I'm going with this, other than just to say
0: Definitely. I appreciate I appreciate your your work on this. If you don't mind, Alan, I want to get one plug in, too, because I know you um, wanted me to talk about how people can support the commercial appeal.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And and I wanted to mention that the best way to support us in our journalism and our journalists is to become a digital subscriber. And I think that's never been more advantageous than it is now. We're offering a great uh, sale these days. I've always wanted to Mention a circulation sale on a call like this. So we're offering a great sale today for just 22 bucks for two years, literally $11. There you go. I'm a subscriber subscriber. subscription, unlimited access to our content. Uh, You just can't beat that. You will probably spend more on dinner at Applebee's on any given day than you will spend for two years of content. From the commercial appeal, so it, I just make that one single plug. If you go to our site, you can find that that offer, and it'll still be around. Maybe in a different form, but it'll be around for a while. We're offering great deals these days.
1: No, I, I agree. Uh, it's uh, it's important to know what's going on, and uh, as you say, it's not just political. You you know, y'all do great stuff with uh, restaurants and uh, uh, attractions and other things that's going on in town. And um, I appreciate all the work that you're doing, uh, Mark.
0: Yeah, my favorite this weekend was not a uh, Watchdog, or it was not a uh, Food Story. It was a simple uh, John Morant quiz by one of our uh, talented writers, John Bifus, who wrote 22 questions to know about John Morant on the occasion of his appearance in the All Star game. And it was just a fun, a fun story that made you appreciate John Morant, Memphis, and John Bifus coming up with that quiz. It's not off the shelf; it's in his head, yeah, <laughs> and it's, yeah. a, it's a it's a great fun quiz too. Well, very good. Well, Mr. Russell, I
1: appreciate it. Uh, I've taken up uh, more of your time than uh, than I, I thought, but it was a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you for uh, all that the Commercial Appeal does for Memphis and all you do for the Commercial Appeal.
0: Thanks, Alan. Thanks for all you do for the community as well, and I appreciate you having me on here. Uh,
1: my pleasure. I appreciate everybody watching. If you enjoyed this, and who wouldn't enjoy it, um, please share it. Uh, forward it whatever uh, comment on it on social media let other people know about it and um, mark is going to go tell memphis what's going on and i'm going to go get some justice thank you all very much
0: have a good